going to begin this morning with a pop quiz. Now, don't worry, we're not going to grade it. I remember when I was in school and there was a pop quiz, I always had that moment of panic, and I might not live up to it, but this is more of a fun one. Here's, here's the question. What miracle of Jesus was so important that all four gospel writers wanted us to know about it? Now, you may not know a whole lot about Jesus, or you may know a lot, but think about what you know. And think about what was one of the things that Jesus did that was so important that all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wanted us to know about. Now, if you were to think in your mind, well, the resurrection of Jesus was the most amazing thing that he did, we would grant that. But apart from that, and all four gospel writers let us know about that, but apart from that, what was the the one miracle that was so important that they wanted to take space in their account of the life of Jesus to make sure that you and I knew about that. I'm speaking, of course, of what is known as the miraculous feeding of over 5,000 people. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took time to write what happened on that day. And so we're looking at Luke's account, and Luke wants us to know about this specifically. Now, remember how Luke begins his gospel account. This is the first words when we open the the Gospel of Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Luke here begins by telling us that he has researched the life of Jesus. And he's writing this specifically for a person named Theophilus. We think that he was a Roman official in Luke's second volume called the book of Acts. Whenever Roman officials are being addressed, it's always prefaced with these words, oh, um, most excellent so-and-so. And so we think he's writing to a Roman official and he's writing an orderly account because he wants him to know for certain the things that he's hearing about Jesus. And so one of the things he includes is this amazing thing that Jesus did that can only be described as jaw-droppingly miraculous. And so we're going to call our study today The Feast Jesus Provides. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to launch your app, go ahead and find your way there. If not, we have it up on the screen as well. So as we get ready to look at this important thing that Jesus did, I want to encourage you to lean into this as we join the disciples on the Sea of Galilee as they uh, approach these shores. And one of the things that we need to have in mind is that in the context of what's going on here, we just heard Luke tell us that Herod, King Herod, you know, cue the imperial death march music, King Herod is wanting to hear more about Jesus because he's hearing what the disciples are doing in the name of Jesus. And so he wants to hear more about that. And he's asking the question, who is this about whom I hear such things? So Luke wants us to have this question in our mind, echoing in our mind as he gets ready to tell us about something else that Jesus did that's actually going to help us understand who he is, understand the central teaching of his ministry, which was about the kingdom of God, And it will help us understand the relevance of what he did some 2,000 years ago for us this day. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin at verse 10 this morning. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. 
So remember, Jesus has sent his disciples out on this mission trip. He gave them power and authority to teach in his name and also to do some of the same kinds of things Jesus was doing. And now they return and they're telling him all about it. And you can tell they're worn out. They're exhausted. Maybe the, the adrenaline and all that's beginning to wear off. So he wants to take them to a town called Bethsaida. And this is important because he's telling us where this event that he's going to tell us about happens. We're actually going to pull in a couple other parts of the New Testament, the other gospel writers' accounts to kind of flesh in or fill in a little bit of what's going on here. So Mark the Evangelist tells us that Jesus said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. (laughs) So Jesus is doing his thing. The disciples return back. They're trying to tell him what's going on. He wants to pull them aside so they can rest. They can get revived. They didn't have time to eat. There's so many people around. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. They get into the boat, push off, and they're headed toward Bethsaida. But the crowds are following him. Mark again tells us, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I wonder what the disciples were thinking. Here they are completely exhausted. They haven't had time to eat. Finally, they're going to get a retreat with Jesus. And so they head out in boat. They, they reach the shores ahead of the town of Bethsaida. And they get out and there's a crowd there. And instead of Jesus sending them away so they can have the retreat, Jesus is welcoming them. I'm not sure this is what they had anticipated. But nevertheless, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So they're not getting the retreat. Jesus is in full ministry mode again. And he's talking to them about the thing that he cannot stop talking about, which is the kingdom of God. This bracketed his ministry on both ends and it filled it completely. Now we've talked about how the kingdom of God was this umbrella term about a vision of the future. That, that incorporated such things as eternal life, knowing God, human flourishing, what the Bible calls shalom, people living for justice and mercy and righteousness. And at the heart of all of that is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came talking about this all the time. And as Jeremy Treat put it, the kingdom of God is the vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. So Jesus is still teaching these crowds because they are like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them. And so even though his disciples need a break, he just goes full into ministry mode, teaching about the kingdom of God. And so we're told by Luke, now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. (laughs) All day long, stuff is happening. They're still not getting their time with Jesus. The day is is wearing thin. And they come to him and say, Jesus, let's send them away. These people need something to eat. We're in this desolate place here. That's what they want him to do. And Jesus says to them in verse 13, you give them something to eat. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) Jesus had just sent them on a mission trip, told them not to take anything with them. They come back empty-handed. They just have stories of the incredible things that God is doing. They're met with crowds. Jesus says, let's go away. They're still doing ministry. They're completely exhausted. 
And he says to them, you give them something to eat. What's Jesus up to here? What's he trying to do? What's he, what's he trying to get them to see? Now, the Apostle John, in his gospel account, tells us this. He said this to test them, for he knew what he himself would do. Jesus is going to test these guys and asking them this question. You give them something to eat. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not be enough to buy, I'm sorry, enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a, a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that where they go among so many? Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. And then we're told by Luke, there are about 5,000 men. So think about this. This is crazy, insane. The crowds are all over Jesus and his disciples. And he points out there's 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that if, if you include the count of, of women who m- might have been there and, and even children, these crowds really could have swelled to about 10 to 15,000. But even if it's not that big, still, there's 5,000 people. And the disciples are looking at Jesus like he's crazy. How are we going to give these people 5,000 plus food to eat? What do they have? They only have five loaves of bread and two fish. But what else do they have? What else are they not seeing that they have? Or perhaps we can ask the question, who do they have that they're not seeing? Jesus is standing right in front of them. They've seen him do some amazing things. They've seen him provide over and over again. But for some reason, all they can see on their horizon is this massive issue. And all they have, they think, are five loaves of bread and two fish. Let me pause and ask this question. Are we not like these disciples in so many ways? We look at things in our life. We look at what's on our horizon, what's, what's on our plate, and we just see problems and issues. And we look at our resources and we're thinking, I don't know if I have what it takes. And we feel overwhelmed. And I don't know about you, but I kind of go into panic mode. <laughs> I worry. I fret. I tell God about my problems. There's nothing that can be done here. I have that old song from Hee Haw in my head. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, right? We tend to be just like the disciples. We see the problem and we see meager resources. But we're not seeing something else, or rather someone else, that we need to take into account. And so Jesus, in verse 14, said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. Now, it's interesting. Just a little parenthetical side note. Mark, in his gospel account of this, the one who told us that Jesus looked upon them as sheep without a shepherd and had compassion on them, tells us this. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, if you know anything about Mark's edition of the life of Jesus, you know it's very compact. Over and over again, he talks about how this immediately happened, and this immediately happened, and this immediately happened. So why does he slow down here and show us a small detail like green grass? 
I think he wants us to see, and this is just a side note, we, we really don't have time to go into it, but he wants us to see that Jesus is their Lord, their shepherd, who leads them beside still waters, who makes them lie down in green pastures. Just an interesting side note there. Jesus, verse 16. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now, in our culture, we oftentimes think of a little prayer before the meal as the blessing. And that's a fine way of speaking about it. But when we're in the scriptures and we hear that word blessing, we're supposed to hear resonances and echoes all the way back into the Old Testament. Blessing is the way that God has intended life to be. In fact, when he called Abraham and said that through him, he wants to bring blessing to this world and through his descendants to bring blessing to this world, we're meant to see that as the undoing of everything that's wrong about this world. So where there's shortage, there's, there's meant to be plenty. And so he says this blessing over these five loaves of bread and two fish. And he breaks the loaves and he gives them to the disciples to sit down before the crowd. I have that word gave highlighted there because I want us just to dive into the Greek language for just a second. Now, I know I'm not trying to impress you or anything like that. Don't worry about that. If, if you're not a language nerd, don't worry about it. I just want to point out that in the original language, the verb tense is put in what's called the imperfect tense. You can translate it literally as he kept on giving. It wasn't just that he gave once and he stopped. He kept on giving. He, he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples and kept giving them to his disciples to distribute to these over 5,000 people who are gathered. I love the way that Kent Hughes, one commentator, put it. He said, Jesus kept producing the bread and the fish in his hands by the supernatural power of God. Jesus kept creating tons of barley cakes and fish between the palms of his hands. This was creation power. And he quotes another commentator by the name of Alexander McLaren, who said, the pieces grew under his touch and the disciples found his hands full when they came back with their own empty. Now, when we see this, some of us will go, ah, oh, this is amazing to see Jesus with this kind of creation power in the palms of his hands, to see him provide blessing where there was scarcity. That's amazing. And we marvel. But some of us perhaps look at this and say, you seriously can't take this for real, that this actually happened. This, I don't see miracles, and this is a bit far-fetched for me to, to get my mind around. And let me just say, if, if that's what you're thinking, I get that. I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature. We live in a world with too many snake oil men in this world trying to sell us something, making a quick buck. We're very hyper-conscious that someone wants something from us and will take advantage of us. That's why when your doorbell rings, when you're not expecting anyone, your first response is to go, who is that? What do they want? I don't want to answer the door, Right? I get that skepticism. But let me just point out something. If you're wrestling with this, let me point something out. Luke tells us exactly where this happened. He tells us this happened on, the, they're coming to Bethsaida, which is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And, and before that town, there's this plain that reaches out. This is where this miracle took place. Now, Luke is writing, and he wants you to know that Jesus did miraculous things. But he's ultimately trying to make his case to show you what happens at the end of the story of Jesus. That is his own resurrection. That's the greatest miracle he wants you to understand. And so if, if Luke and the other early followers of Jesus are going to go around and say, we saw Jesus come back from the dead. There are eyewitnesses everywhere who saw him alive. Then why would they make up a story about something that didn't happen? Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, this is a scholar at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, he said that whenever you see a name dropped, like a few weeks ago we looked at the, the daughter of Jairus, who was a, um, a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. We, we saw Jesus bring back his dead daughter from life. So that's like a footnote, he said. Or when they drop a, a name of a town, like Bethsaida, and said, this is where this happened. These are footnotes. This is the way they did footnotes in the, in the ancient world. And so if they're trying to convince you that Jesus has come back from the dead, then why would they make up a story about him feeding over 5,000 people when anyone at that time in the living memory of these things that happened could go to the area of Bethsaida and ask anyone, did you see this happen? Why would they do that? If, it, if, if they're trying to convince you that Jesus came back from the dead and that really didn't happen, they wouldn't have included this. But they included it because it did happen. And anyone, including Theophilus, that Roman official, could go to Bethsaida and investigate and talk to people who saw this happen. And then we're told in this last verse of this section here by Luke. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Here is this astounding crowd of people who just were fed by the creation power of Jesus. And they're satisfied. And I love this little last editorial note here that Luke tells us. These disciples who at one point only saw five fish, I'm sorry, five loaves of bread and, and two fish, not even enough for each one of the disciples, the 12 of them, to have one in their own hand, now are sitting there with a basket each full of leftover food. What is Jesus trying to communicate to them? I love how Philip Ryken put it in his commentary on this passage. He said, it was so impossible that none of them could explain it, but none of them could deny it either. So, why does Luke record this episode for us in his historical biography? Why do any of the gospel writers want you to know about this important event from the life of Jesus? How does it help us understand who he is and what he has come to do? Well, at least according to Luke's biography of Jesus, this is what we've been learning so far. Jesus himself is the Lord of nature. We've seen him calm a storm. He is the Lord of spiritual realms as well. We've seen him cast out malevolent personal forces that have demonized people and made people whole. He is Lord of life. He has restored people who have had leprosy who have had withered hands that were not functional. He's brought them back to life. He's Lord of death. We've already seen in Luke's gospel alone, Jesus raising the, the widow's son at name. Remember, he, he was encountering this funeral procession of a woman who was burying her only son. We've seen him bring Jairus' 
daughter back to life. And here Luke tells us Jesus is the Lord of creation. He has the ability to make things come into existence. Luke is trying to get us to understand not simply that Jesus is unique and there is no one like him. He's trying to get us to understand that Jesus is the revelation of God for us. And these things that he is doing are illustrative of what happens when the kingdom of God comes near. So if I can summarize our message so far, I would want to put it something like this. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of the feast who can satisfy our deep, deep hunger. Now stay with me. I want just a few points of application here as, as we wrap this up. The first point of application is read this sign correctly and believe. Luke and Matthew and Mark and John are not telling you about this just so you can go, wow, Jesus was some kind of magician. I wonder how he did that. They're wanting us to understand that behind every miracle was a message about the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like when God's coming future kingdom arrives. There is plenty where there was scarcity. And they want us to connect the dots to see that promised future that all the prophets were hanging their hopes on is breaking into the present in the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, when you read John's account of what happened here, we see more happening in the wake of this. We're told in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. These people are going crazy. They're like, this is the prophet that was to come. Let's make him king. He's really handy to have around. But Jesus, seeing that they want to, to make him king by force, withdraws. My friends, don't understand this as saying Jesus isn't a king. Jesus was the king, but he was a king like they were not expecting because Jesus, in a sense, is telling them, your biggest problem is not that your stomachs were empty one afternoon and you had your fill of bread. Your biggest problem is not even a maniacal ruler like Herod that you live in fear of every day. Your problem goes much deeper than that. And I have come to address that problem. What is that problem? It's the alienation of all humanity, Jews, non-Jews, everyone. And I have come to be a king who will lay down my life so that you can live. A little bit later in the Gospel of John, it begins to unpack and they begin to ask Jesus questions. And Jesus answered them. And this is what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs. They saw what Jesus did, but they didn't get it. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world 
is my flesh. Here Jesus tells them in the wake of feeding, as they continue to come to him and ask him questions, he said, look, this miracle was meant to demonstrate for you that I am your nourishment. I am your eternal life. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Yes, this was impressive, eating this bread, and you had your fill, but don't miss the message behind the miracle. I am the one who can satisfy you at your deepest core. I am the bread of life, and if you believe in me, if you trust me, you will have life, eternal life. And so my friends, let's make sure that we're seeing not just simply that sign, but understanding that sign and believe in the one who multiplied this bread. Second point of application is this. Look beyond your horizon. Look beyond your horizon. And what I want to dial in in this part, point of the, the study is that reaction of the disciples. When, when they looked and they saw only a big, huge problem on their horizon, they didn't take into account that before them was God in the flesh. Let me tell you about a, a story from our life that we had to learn the hard way, to look beyond just what we can see. My wife and I got married here as students at Texas A&M. I had one semester left. She had two. When we graduated, I went and took a position at a church in Florida working with youth. And it was just meant to be a, a short two-year internship, and after that, we're going to go on to seminary. And so we, we ministered there, we learned a lot, but it was time for us to, to look to take that next step. And so I, I applied to seminary, I, I put in my notice with that church, uh, I, I, was, I was going to work with a campus ministry, and so I, I sent out letters and contacted people to try to raise funds, and there were no answers, nothing was coming in. And, and scholarships I applied for were coming back already filled. And I remember hitting panic mode one day, coming home, and I grabbed my wife, and we went and sat on our bed, and I told her, I said, I think I just screwed our lives up. I, I wanted to take this step of faith and trust in the Lord. I wanted to, to have one of those stories where I saw him come through and provide for us, but everything that I had tried in my, my own ways of seeing things came back empty, and here we are a month away, no job, I'm not sure what we're going to do. We have no way of paying for grad school. And I think I just screwed up our life. And so we did what we should have done when we made that decision originally. In tears, we prayed. And in our follow-up conversation, we remembered a quote that God had given to us during that time we were in Pensacola ministering. It was by a fellow by the name of George McDonald. He was, he was one of C.S. Lewis's heroes. And he said this, and, and my wife and I have gone back to it over and over again. He said, because you cannot see what can be done, you say that God can do nothing. Which is like saying that there cannot be more within his scope than there is within yours. One thing is clear. If he saw no more than lies within your sight, he could not be God. The very impossibility you see in things points to the region God works in. My friends, that quote has sustained my wife and I over the years where we've come to these crises of faith, where all we can see on our own horizon are our own problems and lack of resources. Let me read this to you one more time. Because you cannot see what can be done, you say that God can do nothing, 
which is like saying there cannot be more within his scope than there is within yours. One thing is clear. If he saw no more than lies within your sight, he could not be God. The very impossibility you see in things points to the region God works in. Just like those disciples couldn't see beyond the horizon of this problem. They couldn't see that Jesus was their solution. There were more resources there than they had taken into account. And so as my wife and I prayed and and cast ourselves upon the grace and mercy of God, not knowing what was going to happen, I kid you not, that next week, I got a call out of the blue from a representative of a foundation who asked us to submit a budget of our needs, what our income would be. And this foundation said, we will make sure that at the end of every month you have enough money to attend grad school. I learned a lesson the hard way. I was looking at my problem thinking, there's no solution to this. And I simply surrendered that to God, which I should have done at the very beginning of it. And once I did that, there were things beyond my horizon that materialized that I had no ability to see beforehand. I love the way that Paul Miller put it in his book, A Praying Life, which I highly recommend. He said, when I pray over a problem, that problem begins to sparkle with the energy of God. Strange things begin to happen. I love that. When I, when I don't pray over a problem, all I can see is the problem. But when I lean into that problem and pray over it, I'm expanding my horizons. And I'm, in a sense, bringing God into the equation, which I've left out previously. So, one final point of application I want to present to you. And it's really in the form of a question. What do I have that Jesus could use for his kingdom purposes? I think we can't leave this passage unless we ask ourselves this question. Disciples saw what was available to them. What they needed to do was to give that to Jesus and let him do something about that. What do we have? Well, we have time, some time. We have talents. We have some talents. And we have some treasures. We have all of that plus Jesus. And so what would it look like for us to begin to look at all of our life as a resource that we offer to the Lord and say, Jesus, if you really are about purposes of reconciling people to God, if if you really are going to bring in this kingdom one day, I want my life to be used in that. I want my life to be a blessing so that other people can experience that. Some people say, you know, the problem with Christianity is, is that Christians get so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you heard that? People who who get into Jesus and then all of a sudden they kind of check out of this world. My friends, that should not happen. Following Jesus, especially as we understand that his his kingdom purposes are to bring blessing to this world. And it will come finally one day in what he described as the renewal of all things. We begin to want to see that pour over into lives now. C.S. Lewis answered that objection this way by saying, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men, we might say, and women, who built up the Middle Ages, 
the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. My friends, if you've experienced the blessings of salvation in Christ, if, if you can look at your life and say, I have been blessed with time and talent and resources, we begin to want to put those into motion to bring that same blessing to others. And over and over again in the scriptures, we see God's heart reaching out, especially in those places of need, for people like orphans and widows, immigrants and the poor. Where there's lack, we want to stand in the gap and bring that need to fulfillment. The psalmist, maybe we can, we can adopt the same attitude. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. My friends, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have an inkling of how he has dealt bountifully, bountifully with you, then by, by nature, we want that bounty to overflow into the lives of others. Use my life, Lord. Use my time, use my talent, use my resources, my treasures for your kingdom purposes. My friends, may you taste and see that Jesus is the bread of life. Thank you.